Okay, good evening and welcome to our first episode of uh, Condide or Optimism by Voltaire. I'm Liam O'Sullivan and he's Jacob Gasparini and we'll be looking today at the beginnings of the novel, a little bit of history of Voltaire himself and the motivation, I suppose, behind um, putting together what is a really barnstorming, action-packed 30-chapter novella. Barnstorming, I reckon that's a good, that's a good way to phrase it. Barnstorming, Barnstorming yeah. from one disaster to the next. It, it really is. Until it really it gets, is. Until it gets to the end. We will go up to uh, about chapter 8 today, um, and uh, Jacob will give a bit of an overview of uh, Voltaire himself first here, but if you've just begun reading, on first reading, I think you can sort of be forgiven for thinking that not the novel is designed specifically to deal with class, um, particularly because it starts in a castle. He's, what, the son... The bastard son. The bastard son of the king's... Sister. sister. The baron's sister. The baron's sister, yeah, that's right. Mm. And um, he effectively is trying to work out his life um, and then gets thrust out to the rest of society and sort of gets pinballed around all the different segments of um, the society that Voltaire probably would have been thinking about, criticising, um, considering at about the time that the novel was written. Jacob? So, our man Voltaire, uh, that, is, that is a pen name that he came up with. Um, was born into a very rich family, lucky guy. Uh, and was pretty lucky throughout his life with money, but was born in 1694. He's often seen as the father, I suppose, of Enlightenment. In fact, that whole um, 18th century is often seen as, you know, Voltaire's century because it, you know, it finishes mm. off with the French Revolution, which is often seen as, you know, a result of a lot of, the, of his thinking, even though he probably wouldn't have been very happy with how the French Revolution ended up. Yeah, it sounds like his uh, philosophy or career was sort of just grasped by the revolutionaries as, and they made him like a grandfather figure of it all, oh, when in no way was he an architect for the lopping off of royalty heads no, he would in have, any way. He would have been disgusted in, the, in terms of the violence that was visited upon people, both in terms of um, the guillotine, but even in terms of things like the September massacres where people were murdered in, in their homes, in their streets, um, for thinking different things to the revolutionaries. Yeah, he appears to me to be a guy who just wanted to take the piss and have a laugh at the ridiculousness of the world, not necessarily cut people's heads off. And no. that's, that, I think that's a reasonable course. To I think it's a reasonable course. Exactly. I think it's a great way to live your life. And given that, he was a massive smart-ass, I suppose, and take the, took the mick quite a bit. In Ooh. fact, he took the mick so much out of, um, out of the French aristocracy and the government and the church in particular mm. that he was arrested uh, in the early 1720s for effectively being annoying uh, and, chucked, <laughs> and chucked into the Bastille, uh, I think for a year or two, and then he was banished to England in 1726. It's got and this that, image of him being at his home and the police surrounding his cottage and saying, come out with your hands up, you've been annoying... <laughs> He'd <laughs> been annoying. Yes, that's right. Uh, which I think is a really important thing. You know, him going to England was important on the basis that mm. it introduced him to this whole idea of a constitutional monarchy, and he got introduced to the whole idea of a parliament um, and that kind of form of democracy. Because mm. he was still certainly, uh, he was still definitely an elite. Um, the other thing was Newtonian mm. physics. Um, so getting introduced to those 
scientific ideas. I think that's important too because of some of the, his subsequent writings. Um, based on that. And he brings those things back to France when he comes back in the seven in the late 1720s, like seventeen twenty eight. I think mm. he comes back. Mm. Um, he then becomes the court philosopher for Frederick the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, he's then banished by Frederick the Great. I think because he pissed off Frederick. That wouldn't shock me in the slightest. But Frederick also wanted to use him, I'm fairly certain, too. Um, uh, Voltaire had the idea that he would be almost like a philosopher king uh, in, in Prussia at the time. That, that certainly didn't end up being that way, and I think that's part of the reason why he ended up leaving. Um, the Enlightenment period, you know, he's often seen as you know, the father of the Enlightenment period. I'll touch on it briefly because it is a really large thing, but it, it pretty much begins with the 1650, in the 1650s. Um, it ends effectively with the French Revolution. Um, it sees the rise of reason um, as a form of looking at the world, as well as their, one of their big pushes, I think, for the Enlightenment period was this whole idea of the separation of church and state. So, you know, separating those powers apart from one another because they sort of had a monopoly on power and the way that people viewed the world. Um, Candide, written in 1759. If I can uh, just interject there, sorry. The expectation that you bring to the novel, I think, has to be that you have an understanding of a few key terms, mm. one of them being the Enlightenment. Enlightenment, definitely. And also having an understanding that sort of pre-17th century, the world that we're looking upon is one that is governed completely by crown and religion. Yeah. Completely. Right. So everything is done under God and effectively the king or queen is the representative of God on earth unless you're a Roman Catholic um, yeah. you know so the, the king of England for example is the head of the, ch- the church of England um, which means they speak on behalf of God as the Pope does now and always has for, for a Roman Catholic um, th- this world that now exists the world of the rational or, or sorry the logical is that the word that you used before? Reason. There's a rise of reason, but yeah, rational. Yeah. Reason, yeah. Um, is is one that's sort of new and people are getting jiggy with the idea of discovering um, new things, physics and science and technologies and all those kind of things. It's new. But I think it's probably also important to note that that was not for the common people. No, this so is for the educated elite. Which was very few in comparison to common day, and sorry, in comparison to the modern day, um, there's very few people who are educated and understood the things that Voltaire was talking about. Yes, he's one of the absolute elite. He goes to, what, uh, the uh, Franciscan College or something? Jesuit College, and that's, you know, that that becomes clear, Um, his dislike for the Jesuits becomes clear throughout Candide, Um, but yeah, he went to Jesuit College, he came from a very wealthy family, his father was a lawyer, Um, Voltaire himself made a lot of money through uh, a government-run lottery, apparently, which him and his mathematician mate rigged so they would win. Yeah, I, th- yes. I, I, I heard something about that. He became exceedingly wealthy that way. Um, so from that point, so 1759, we're seeing him write uh, Candide, apparently in under a week, which is exceptional, obviously. Um, there are, I think there's only one manuscript that survives, from what I'm aware of, although there were several originally. I think the, one that, the oldest one that survives was penned by his secretary or something, I'm not sure. Uh, some of the, I think an important thing to remember at that time, and it's it's certainly seen as often as a catalyst for him writing Candide, or a key trigger moment, um, was the earthquake in Lisbon um, in 
1755 yeah. was that earthquake. And that's important if you think, oh, it's an earthquake, who cares? But at the time, you've got to remember, you know, every event was seen as, um, as an action from God itself. And people found it really difficult to understand that. And he covers that, that idea uh, in Candide itself when he actually, he, the, Candide comes across the Lisbon earthquake. Um, mm. So, you know, it shook religious belief in Europe. Yeah, well, so, uh, after that, Voltaire exiled himself. Um, so, he wrote Candide in his... He had a, he had a little farm, a little estate uh, on the outskirts of Geneva, which was a Protestant city-state at the time. Um, he called it uh, Le Delices, which um, is translates as The Delights, which I think is probably very fitting for him to create this place where he would um, write and um, spout forth about all different types of things. Uh, and take many, many visitors, apparently, um, but would very, very, very rarely leave. Um, and the interesting thing that I read about this was that, you know, this is a place, he, the big thing about his, uh, his estate was that he was really keen on making it beautiful in terms of the gardens themselves. Uh, and he often comes back to this idea, and we'll look at it in a lot more detail in this text, yeah. uh, this idea of tending his garden. Although, in saying that, he had like three gardeners and 20 workmen working for him. However, you could still say he was tending his garden. <laughs> so that's sort, of, that's sort of where we're at in terms of Voltaire himself, um, the kind of time period. And like you said, um, Liam, I think it is really important that students understand historically what was happening in the 18th century uh, and even in the, a little bit of the 17th century in terms like the Enlightenment. Mm. So you understand those influences on Voltaire, the easier it will be to understand what does come across as quite a... Yeah. Difficult novel. Well, it's critical because you have to... Effectively, a crash course in 17th, 18th century uh, European world or even just uh, the, the world that um, is documented at that time. I've got a figure here of there's a 29% literacy rate for, the, for French men in 1700. You know, that means three in ten people can read. Mm. Uh, the, the newspaper is new as an idea... So if we accept that the internet now has been around for what, you know, in a real working phase for like 20 years, mm. um, and it's effectively where we get all of our information, when this earthquake happens, the newspaper is able to distribute this information around Europe within a couple of days. And that's new. That, like before that, in the 16th century, you know, pre-printing press even, that sort of communication couldn't happen that quickly. So Voltaire was able to influence a lot of people very quickly. Uh, he writes this novel at 65, and um, if we return to the barnstorming, I think that's the place to go. So uh, Condide grows up in a castle at Westphalia, um, and he is effectively under um, the academic choreographing of Pangloss, the great philosopher. The great philosopher, indeed. And he is representative of something that Voltaire despises, and that's a guy called Leibniz. He's a philosopher from the 17th century, yeah. um, and his belief is that the world is the best of all possible worlds. So the current world as it is and all of the things that happen can be rationalised as being the best possible world that could possibly exist. Yeah, and they all form part of a larger plan. So no matter how bad is bad the event is that occurs to you, it's part of a greater plan that you might not be aware of. Yeah, that's right. And each individual part of that plan can be rationalised. 
So there's those funny examples in the uh, in the novel of um, the need for uh, glasses. We have noses to hang glasses on. Noses were formed to support spectacles. Therefore, yeah. we have spectacles. Yes. Yeah, so there's this. He's poking fun at this ridiculous notion of cause and effect. Because of one thing, something else has to occur. Um, and this is sort of the rationale of uh, Leibniz and, by implication, Pangloss, who he paints as a... Avatar, almost, of Leibniz himself. Yeah, exactly. Or and he's a physical the... embodiment of his philosophy. Yeah, and he's the teacher, effectively, in Westphalia. So he's employed by the Baron. He runs the show. He's living the dream. Yeah, that's right. His whole life is a fantasy camp. <laughs> that's true. Um, and so... Uh, he advises Condit, and don't be, don't feel um, silly for having missed that early on. That what he's talking about is absolutely ridiculous, um, because this guy stubbornly maintains this optimism, which is a sort of a new jargon word for all of those sort of things, mm. as an, a stubborn ideology that he maintains through the whole novel. And he unceasingly says, "Well, you know, venereal disease arrived from." Uh, North America and South America via Christopher Columbus, but if we didn't have venereal disease, we wouldn't have chocolate. You know, if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have chocolate, we wouldn't yeah. have these spices, all these things. I feel like Pangloss is effectively the Kramer of Candide. Yeah, well, a little bit, but with cred. With, you know, well, with some sort of credit, that's right. Yeah, he's not just an annoying neighbour. Mm. I think the interesting thing about Pangloss, I and mean, one of the things that Voltaire does throughout the text, is he loves playing with language. Um, uh, but he also liked playing with names. And it's a shame that we can't read this in French, because uh, I think there'd be even more there to dig out. But I don't speak French. And we'd sound much more beautiful. Everything we say would sound amazing. Yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, some of the names, so, you know, Candide itself uh, comes from the Latin can, uh, Candidus, you know, for, which is the term that means white or pure and beautiful, hence honest and open. Oh, as in candid. As in candid. Right, yeah, English yes. candid. Um, and the interesting thing I found out was that uh, that word Candide was used in the French translation of Locke's essay, Essays on Human Understanding, which is really interesting also, as a side note again, because Leibniz wrote a text after that called mm. New Essays on Human Understanding. <laughs> uh, and, but anyway, so Locke refers, uses that word Candide to refer to someone who's, who refers to the self as a blank sheet of white paper on which experience is written. I like that phrase because it really just is a great metaphor mm. for Candide and the way he operates throughout the entire text. Things just happen to him. Yes, he's a bl complete blank text. He's got offers no judgment or really any substance at all. It just seems like he sort of consumes what happens around him. In fact, he doesn't even see the exciting stuff. Like Cunegonde is the one who sees Pangloss having it off with the maid. And that gives her the idea to maybe have a crack at Candide. Yeah, and, and effectively it just happens to Candide. And because he has sex with uh, Cunegonde, or he's... He did, I don't know if they make... Well, yeah. I don't know if they, they actually make the distance, but they're definitely I getting don't... busy, and they're discovered, and then he's dismissed from the... Uh, That's right, he gets booted out. The Baron kicks him up the backside and boots him out. Yeah. Even Cunegonde's name is... Uh, yeah, but that uh, the vulgar Latin for the female genitalia. So I'm not going to drop that word, but it starts begins with C as well in English. Right. Uh, and French, in French it's cool, which is ass. 
Uh, but it also is a bit of onomatopoeia for Saint Cunegonde, which is spelled with a K and a N A U D as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was he becomes who gets canonized uh, because she's accused of being a an adulteress, but she wasn't. She proved her virginity, so she's really pure by walking across these uh, flaming irons or some rubbish, and she doesn't get burned. And she survives, and she gets canonized. So I think now it's that's the way to prove your virginity. Well, yeah. Walk Not through a medical examination. No, it's walk silly. through some fire exactly. and get that. Why be sensible? Uh, so I think that's that's a good contrast there, which we see that with Cunegonde throughout the story too. <laughs> it sure is a contrast. Definitely a contrast. Um, so after that point of him being moved effectively or, or shunned from the... Is it a kingdom? Or? It's a, it's a, it would be a duchy, I don't know how that's going. A baron. Baroness, he's a baron. It's a, it's a, it's a place. A place where he lives. Whatever, it's a place. Um, Powerful so, lord, he was a lord. Yeah, he gets thrust out, and if, you, if we refer back to when I was talking about you could be forgiven for thinking this is a class-based thing, he gets shunted out of uh, a society or community that we would presume that Voltaire would have grown up in. You know, in court, around rich people well-educated, literate, and so on. Mm. But then, after being expelled from, quote, the earthly paradise, he wanders around. Like, he just sort of walks around. So, you know, impressionable is this guy, like you were saying before, Mm. Jacob, and just happens to run into two men dressed in blue. And they sort of effectively say, well, we'll pay for lunch for you. And then he accidentally... um, Becomes recruited. Yeah, he's recruited to the Bulgarian army. Yep. Uh, or the Bulgars is their, the their reference. That's right. Again, make, you know, he's making fun of... This is Voltaire making fun of Frederick's um, feared recruiting agents mm. who would go around and trick...